Everyone, welcome to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. We're in a series right now where our vision for this season is family living in heavenly reality. And we're kind of examining this idea of what does it look like for us to become the family that God has intended for us to be and to live in that heavenly reality, to live as his people, as his sons and daughters. And so we're kind of examining these four separate rooms that the Lord has given us um, just to see what it looks like for us to be a family in each of these rooms. The first one was healthy relationships. And for four weeks, we talked about healthy relationship from several different aspects. Um, last week, our very own Greg Singleton came and spoke, and it was absolutely beautiful. I highly encourage you uh, to go back and to listen to that. And if you ever need a logo placed on any sort of uh, thing, he's, the, he's your man. He's the one that will make that happen for you. So again, Greg, thank you so much. Um, so uh, healthy relationships, we're moving into the next one, is going to be healthy leadership. For the next two Sundays, we're going to be talking about healthy leadership. And um, I've been praying about this one for a while, and I'm really excited about what the Lord um, has in store for us tonight. I'm also frustrated because there's always so much more that we could talk about, but I only get 35 to 45 minutes. That's my goal anyway. We'll see how we do with that. Um, but I, I'm really excited for what the Lord has for us tonight. And as we're talking about healthy leadership this week and next week, I want you to think about it in the context of, of being a leader but also being a follower. Because all of us follow somebody, right? But we also all in some degree um, are leaders. I think about that absolutely classic film from 1995, Hook, the very last scene when Peter is finally inaugurating the new pan and he gives it to... Rufio? No. Come on. Thud. He gives it to Thud, and then he comes to Curly, and Curly says, well, who do I get to look after? And he says, never bugs, little ones. So everybody has some sort of role of leadership within the kingdom of God. And so as we're going through this, I want you to think about it in terms of you being a leader in some capacity, but also in terms of you as a follower. What are the qualities that we should be looking for in people um, that, uh, that want to lead us? And of course, everything that we talk about tonight, the underlying foundation is King Jesus himself. Everything is bound up in who he is, is the ultimate demonstration of what it means to be a leader. And so my... Um, my thesis tonight is this, humility is the foundation of godly leadership. Humility is the foundation of godly leadership. So let's pray. You, you pray for me, and I'll pray for you. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for meeting us in just such a sweet time of worship, Lord. Um, it's so encouraging to see um, almost tangibly how you're binding us together in your spirit, that you're making us of one voice, of one mind, of one heart, of one spirit. You're teaching us how to recognize the unity that we have in Christ Jesus, and we celebrate that tonight, Lord. So, Father, in this moment, would you uh, teach us each how to come before you open-handed, uh, without agenda, or the only desire within us is to grow closer to you, to know you more, and to know who you're calling us to be as individuals and as a church community. So, Father, may we learn uh, to lay down the guilt and the regret of yesterday, and even to pause when we're thinking about the anxieties of tomorrow, just be fully present in this moment. And may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever-pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Several years ago, I came across this quote from St. Augustine of, of Hippo, one of the church fathers in the, in the early centuries, and he says this, Do you wish to rise? Begin by descending. 
You plant a tower that will pierce the clouds. Lay first the foundation of humility. Humility, I think, is one of those constant themes that we see throughout Scripture. Indeed, I would say that humility and pride, the discussion about humility and pride, is at the very core of the biblical narrative. And so it's important that right from the get-go we understand what we're talking about when we're talking about humility. Because either churches kind of put humility aside, or it's something we kind of run through real quick so we can get to the good stuff, or it's something that we place in a false narrative that's a false form of humility which kind of equates itself to powerlessness. And what are we actually talking about when we're talking about humility? Humility is us recognizing our reliance upon God. Humility is us living in the constant awareness that we need God. Have you ever heard some of those uh, testimonies before where someone's talking about how, you know, 10, 15 years ago, they used to be in a bike gang and they used to go around kicking puppies and like smashing beer bottles all over the place. And then they met Jesus and now they're awesome. You know those testimonies? Was that you? You were a puppy kicker? Bro, can I get the prayer team down here real quick? Yeah, I am the prayer team, that's right. <laughs> that's right, because God equips the willing. Um, but sometimes when we hear these testimonies, what we're inadvertently hearing or what we're inadvertently saying is, yes, there was a time in my life when I needed Jesus, but I'm fine now. You know, there was this moment where I was really messed up and everything was going wrong in my life, but Jesus came in and he fixed me and now everything's great. And that's fine, but I think within that there seems to be a lack of humility. And I think our endeavor as Christians is that we should recognize today our need for Jesus more clearly than at any point in our life ever before. Because that's what it means for us to be Christians, is that we find our source in God as revealed in King Jesus, as our Messiah. And we live out of that constant place of recognizing our need for God of placing ourselves open-handed before him and allowing him to become our strength. And that's where we find the ability to do the things that God is calling us to do. So if humility is learning and recognizing our reliance upon God, then pride is our unhealthy focus on self at the expense of God. When we think it's about our abilities and our strengths and our skills and our awesomeness, that's when we find ourselves in that place of pride. Or similarly, we can find ourselves in the place of self-pity, where we're focused inward and we're only seeing our brokenness and our neediness, but not in a way that it actually brings us to the feet of Jesus, but it keeps us wallowing in our own self-righteousness. You see, pride and pity are really just two versions of the same thing, self-righteousness, that we define who we are, that, that we get to determine our story. And whatever God's saying about us, that, that, that's not good enough. Whatever I determine at the end of the day, that's who I really am. And it's self-righteousness. But I think this beautiful picture of humility is our open-handed awareness of our reliance on God day to day actually positions us to be able to say yes to the things that God is calling us to and to accept the responsibility that he's placed on each one of you in the gifts that he's given you, in the location he's, he's put you in, in the relationships he's surrounded you with. It's the, your open-handed willingness to say yes to him in that that is the most empowering thing of all. And as I said, this is a constant theme in Scripture. Look at the story of Adam and Eve. We talk about how pride comes before the fall. It's when Adam and Eve think that it's within themselves, they're going to find the answer within themselves, and that they can divorce themselves from needing the Lord. 
We see it over and over again. We see it in the Tower of Babel, or Babel, depending on however you grew up saying that word. But we, what do they say? They say, let us build a tower that, that'll go from all the way to heaven that we can reach God on our own merit. And brothers and sisters, we've been doing that ever since. Indeed, I think at the very core of every human struggle, whether it's a one-on-one thing or it's a, a nations and empires, humility and pride are found in the very core of that thing. And so tonight I want to talk about that struggle between humility and pride, and I want to look at it through the lens of two kings. We're going to be looking tonight at the story of Saul and how it meshes with the story of David. So in this, in this part of the story, we've seen God bring Israel through the desert into the promised land. We've seen that God rise up the judges in moments of turmoil to kind of keep Israel safe, to get them back on course. And before long, Israel starts to ask for a king. Now, whatever we're looking at when we're, when we're reading the story of Israel in the Old Testament, God is establishing his kingdom. And it's always the shadow of the kingdom that's to come. So when God establishes Israel in the Middle East, what he's really doing is setting it up for the coming of the true king, the Messiah, and a a kingdom that does not know boundaries, does not know ethnicities. And it's interesting, in Deuteronomy 17, we even find God warning Israel against the idea of having a king. So we're going to be jumping in with 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to be looking at just a couple of verses from here. So Samuel was the last of the judges and was considered a prophet in his day. And God comes to him and says, listen, Israel's going to come and they're going to want a king from you. And I've already said what I think about that, but let's take a look at what happens. So 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you're old. Now, just... Whenever you want something from people, it's always really good to start off by demoting them. You're old. What's wrong with old? Well, let's find out. You're old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. So even there, we see in Israel this seed of pride. You're old. You're not good enough. The judges, they're not good enough. God just raises them up for a moment, and then he tries to supposedly trust us to stay on course. And then the second part of pride is looking around at everyone else and saying, everybody else got a king. Why can't we have a king? We want to be just like all the other nations. We want to be just like everybody else. We've got our boundaries, and we've got our castle, and we've got a king in it, we've got a queen. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not that they've rejected you, but they've rejected me as their king. (laughs) Sounds good. It's not that they've rejected you, but they've rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're doing to you. Now, listen to them. But warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And so Samuel goes back to the elders. He says, if you bring a king, they're going to tax the heck out of you. They're going to take your women and children. They're going to do all these things. Are you sure? And they're like, yes, give us a king. Because they're not really listening. And so they've rejected God as their king. It was always God's intention to be the king over his own kingdom. And it's the same thing that we find today. We want to be like everyone else. 
We begin to look around at the empires of the world. We want to see how do they do it out there. And maybe, maybe we can just import those versions of power into the kingdom of God, into the church. And we can replicate those things, and that's how you're successful. That's how you're strong. That's how you build a good brand. By just looking around at what everybody else is doing and seeking to draw that in. You see, pride comes before the fall. But is it not the graciousness of God that he acquiesces? And he says, okay, I'm going to give you a king. I've told you exactly what this is going to look like. We call this the wrath of God. The wrath of God is him saying, I love you so much that I'm going to give you exactly what you want. Look it up, Romans chapter 1 and 2. That's what the wrath of God is. I love you so much that I'm going to let you chase after the desires of your heart in the hope that at some point you will turn around and look back and come back to me and recognize the things that I had for you were better than anything you could have possibly imagined. And We see the wrath of God coming through, establishing the king. Now, this is really important as we're looking at these two stories of first Saul and then David. Circumstance alone does not make us humble. It is how we choose to press into the Lord that matters. Sometimes we think because we've come from poverty or because we've come from the other side of the railroad tracks or because we've had a hard life or whatever it might be, what we call quote-unquote humble circumstances, that's the thing that automatically sets us up to be humble. But it's not so much the circumstances themselves, but it's what we choose to do in that. It's what we choose to do with the circumstances that we've been dealt by the brokenness of the world. Whether we choose to, to press into the Lord or we set in for our own self-determinedness. Or we set into our own self-pride that really determines whether or not we live a humble life. So it's the outcome of the events. It's those stretching moments of crisis in our lives that really push us towards the feet of Jesus or make us turn inward looking for some sort of an inward strength. And I think that actually gives us freedom to resist having to compare circumstances with the people around us. I know when I was young, I really struggled when I heard those testimonies of people coming out of these really dire situations. And I felt like my, my story, my testimony was not as glamorous. It wasn't as dynamic. I grew up in the church. My father's a pastor. Like, I don't remember a time that I did not know the name of the Lord. But over, like, eventually, I started to, to walk with God in a way that he showed me the beauty of my own story. Not because of my circumstances or the lack of circumstances, but because every circumstance, the outcome of it has been that it's drawn me deeper into his presence. And so I want to give you that. Own your story. There's such a beautiful call to humility in that. For you to own your story and that the circumstances and events in your life are the things that are the opportunity for you to press into the Lord, whether you come from nothing or you come from a lot. So we're going to look at the story of Saul first. I find the story of Saul absolutely fascinating because what we have here is that potential that is brought to pride. So Samuel anoints Saul as king, and it mentions that Saul is a head taller than everybody else because that's how we choose leaders. So in the current political climate, I think the tallest person's already probably dropped out. So that's what we're really looking for is height. That's what makes a good king, surely. But what we find in Saul is as the very first king, what's he doing? All of the judges are like these chieftains of little tribes, and there's little warring tribes. But now Israel's starting to come together as a nation. It's beginning to define itself. It's beginning to have boundaries. And so Saul, as the first kingdom, the first king lives under this pressure of nation building. That he feels the weight of the call of God on his life. 
And he starts off in a good place of learning how to rely on the Lord. It's so cute. Even when they go to anoint him as king, they can't find him. And it says, oh, he's hiding in the supplies. I don't know why, but he's like, he's like hiding behind the supplies. He's like, yeah, hi, I'm Saul. He's a head taller than everybody else. He's not fooling anybody. But he starts off in such a place of, of maybe even false humility. But eventually he accepts this role, but he very quickly gets ahead of himself. And he starts to do all of these things that really reveal how his heart has changed. And he started to divorce himself from relying on God as the true king and believing that it's all about himself. Turn with me, please, to 1 Samuel 15, uh, beginning in the 10th verse. This is one of those passages that I really want to read in the KJV just because it's funnier. But I won't do that. We're going to read this in the New International. So the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I've made Saul king. So what's just happened? Saul has been sent out by God to harem the Amalekites. Harem is a word that, it's, it's like the intersection of worship and total destruction. Very odd concept for us today, especially in the age of grace. But this happens periodically in the Old Testament where God says, I want you to go into this place and I want you to wipe out every living thing as a demonstration of worship. That, you, that as you kill everything, then it shows how completely you worship me. And so what happened was that Saul led his army into the midst of the Amalekites and killed everybody except for the king, Agag, and except for the choicest of the sheep and the bulls. And they bring this booty back with them to their, to their tents. And so, of course, this disappoints the Lord tremendously. He says, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I've made Saul king. Because he's turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. Because sometimes we think that we're the ones that have won the battle, right? Sometimes we think that we're the ones that have achieved the thing. And so we're going to go and set up the little monument for ourselves that probably sits pretty close to the monument that we set up for God. Just on a different hill. It's okay. We can do that, right? And that's the beginning of the fall. As we begin to put other things up next to God, we build these other little idols out of our own successes and our own victories, the things that we think that we've done by our own strength. And so when Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I've carried out all the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in mine ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? It's always the sheep and goats that are going to tip you off. You know what I mean? Just don't mess with them. If you're going to steal something, steal quiet animals like deer and turtles. He would have gotten away with it. Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. How often do we justify the things that we've done out of our own cockiness? We say, oh, no, 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 I'm doing it for the Lord. Isn't it convenient that sometimes the things that we want in our flesh are the same things that we'll just describe to the Lord? Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night and the most foolish words that Saul ever replied with. Tell me, Saul replied. Just walked right into that one. Saul said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy. That's that word harem. Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. 
I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. Those things do not sit next to each other. The soldiers took the sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you as king. You see, when we walk in pride, when we start to make up the rules on our own, and maybe we try to rationalize out that it's from God, we're setting ourselves up as idols. You know, John Calvin said that we are idol factories. That we're always in the business, business of building these little idols. If we don't build idols out of God, we build idols out of self. If we don't build idols out of self, we build it out of other people. And we just keep putting them up on the shelf. But the beauty is that God is in the business of breaking idols. And so prideful leadership breeds entitlement. Humble leadership never takes for granted the opportunities given by the Lord. You see, when we're in that place of leadership and we start to determine what it is that we think that we deserve because of our position, because of our gifts, because of our natural abilities, because of our passions, whatever it might be, when we start to enter into that rhythm of entitlement where we think there's certain things that we deserve and we reach out to take them, that's the place where we have started to walk away from the desires of God within us. And inevitably what that leads us to is we think there's certain situations or certain people that are just below us. They're not really worth our time. They're not really worth us stopping and pausing and dealing with. You know, several years ago when I first moved to Nashville to teach high school, um, I joined this small group. And six months into it, I was asked um, to lead this group by the pastor. And so I started doing that, and it was really the beginning of my ministry. And it was a really beautiful time of, of just learning how to teach the word and how to, to pastor a community of about 15 to 30. And at one point, the pastor came up to me and he said, you know what, Ryan? You've got a major spiritual pride issue. You surround yourself with people that know less than you, and you draw your source from that. And I was like, four-letter words, bro. Like, I was so <laughs> mad. I was insulted. I had never had anybody come up that directly and just call something up in me like that. And I walked away thinking, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't see us hanging out. Like, I'm doing them a favor by hanging out with them and revealing, oh. <laughs> there, okay, there it is. So I started to recognize that I have this major struggle with spiritual pride. That I had turned my followers into trophies. They weren't people. They were trophies. And I was kind of determining who was worth my time and my wisdom and who wasn't. And I was surrounding myself with those people because it elevated who I was. It wasn't really elevating Jesus. Now, the thing that I had to walk through with that was recognizing at any given moment, I may be the smartest person in the room. Because we can go into that place of false humility where we actually negate the, the gifts that God's given us, right? We put them away and we say, oh, no, 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 I can't possibly, like, in order to not have pride, I can't even like, admit that that thing exists. And I found myself in really uncomfortable, personal uncomfortable situations and feeling even guilty for being smart, for reading books, for having this joy in teaching the word. And I had to come through that other side to recognize the gifts that God's given me in terms of wisdom or knowledge or whatever it might be, they don't make me better than anybody else. 
They don't put me on a pedestal, even though literally right now I'm on a pedestal. I know it's <laughs> ironic. It's just so you can see me. But there is nothing within me that makes me better than anybody else. There's nothing that makes me a better Christian, that makes me more awesome than you. But the gifts that God's given me are an opportunity for me to serve, to give to other people. And when we recognize that that call to leadership is actually the gift of serving other people with the gifts that God has given us, with the passions he's given us, in the place and the time that he's given us, it changes how we understand what leadership really looks like. King Jesus always took time for the worthless. King Jesus always took time for the ones that weren't worth very much to other people. King Jesus was the one that would always stop to see those who were overlooked and to say, no, 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 you're the one with the keys to the gate of heaven. Because King Jesus values every single person above and beyond their gifts and their passions. And they were so willing to follow him because of that. Jesus tells this parable about these bags of gold that a master gives to different servants and they each do different things with them. But the last one goes out and he takes the bag of gold and he invests it and it brings back a return. And it says this in Matthew 25, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. You see, as leaders, wherever we're leading, however we're leading, whomever we're leading, we should always recognize the giftedness that it is to be the vessel through which God is going to lead someone else into his good graces. And the beauty is that when we start with the small, God will give us more. But we always start with the small so we never take for the, the small things for granted. We see them as much of a gift as they are the larger platforms and the more powerful places that we may descend to. Do you wish to arise? Begin by descending. You plant a tower that will pierce the clouds. Lay first that foundation of humility. So we're going to take a Selah right here. We're going to take a moment. I just encounter, I'm going to encourage you just to pray with the Lord around this question. What responsibility has God given me in advancing his kingdom? So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would um, anoint each of your dear ones. Open their ears to hear your voice in this moment. Father, reveal to us the responsibilities that you've invited us to say yes to, open-handed and in humility. Thank you, Lord. Let's just take a moment, reflect, and pray.
Heavenly Father, would you give us courage to say yes to the responsibility that you're calling us to? Whether in our own eyes it seems like it's too little or it seems like it's too much. Father, that we would shift into that place of being good and faithful. That everything that you give us is a gift and the opportunities that you give us are a gift. We thank you for that, Lord. May we see your kingdom advance in our lives. And so Saul commits this, this crime against God that, that betrays the fact that he's beginning to separate himself from recognizing his daily reliance on, on the Lord. And so in the next chapter, Samuel anoints David as the king. And David is one of, one of God's favorite scenarios. God loves the barren woman. God loves the last child. God loves the ones that have no self-confidence and are constantly questioning and wondering, are you sure you picked the right person? You see, God loves those people because, not, again, not because of their circumstances in and of themselves, because they're uniquely positioned. They have no illusions of their own grandeur. And they're willing to say yes in the midst of that because there's no other option for them but trusting in the Lord to guide and to protect. And even as, as God um, identifies David as the future king, he says this, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now the interesting thing about David being anointed as king is that Saul is still on the throne. And David had to wait almost 20 years to ascend to the throne. And that's that 20-year period that we're going to be looking at in a moment. But just imagine that. Imagine the things that God has spoken over you, and you've got to wait 20 years to see those things come to fruition. Are they worth it? Are the promises of the Lord still worth it? Is the healing that he's promised you still worth it? Is the call or the gifts, the passions, are they still worth it if you have to wait 20 years? Because perhaps like David, there's certain things that God wants to do within you to, to establish your character, to reflect his in a way that when you say yes in that moment, you're able to do it with your eyes open and your hands ready to do the work that God has called us to. In that time, that 20-year span, God uses Saul to refine David to be the leader that he desired for him to be, a leader who honors and trusts. Perhaps if David had ascended to the, to the throne immediately, he would have gone the way of Saul. He would have started off in that place of humility, but he would have very quickly been overcome by the burden of building a nation or overcome by the, the, the responsibility of the throne or perhaps all of the wealth and the power that comes with being the king. But we find this, this cat and mouse game between Saul and David for almost 20 years as Saul's heart is turned against David, and David has to be out on the run. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 18 at one such story. This is beginning in verse 6. So this is right after the David and Goliath story. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing, with dancing, with joyful songs, and with tambrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul had slain his thousands. And David is tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought. But me with only thousands. Who gets upset? Oh, I've only killed thousands of people, but not tens of thousands like David. But we do that too, don't we? We look around at the people around us and we say, well, I've only accomplished this and that person's accomplished that. 
And again, there's that seed of pride that betrays our fear and our lack of confidence in who we are and who God's called us to be, that we feel the need to define ourselves by comparing ourselves to other people around us. What more can he get but the kingdom, Saul wonders. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil or impure spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David. Because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. And everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. You see, Saul's pride led him to a place of paranoia and fear. Because he was afraid he was going to lose what he felt like he deserved as the king, as the one in power. And he began out of his pride to compare himself to David and it set in as paranoia and bitterness. And before long, Saul is throwing spears at David. Now perhaps we encounter those situations in our own lives where we've, we've worked under a Saul or there's a Saul in our lives. And because of their pride or their brokenness, they throw spears at us all the time. And what the world teaches us, what the empire teaches us, is to pick that spear up and to throw it right back. Because you better defend yourself. You've got to defend what's yours. But I posit to you that when we raise our fists, when we go to throw back spears to to defend our kingdoms, we're actually betraying the fact that we don't believe in God either. We don't trust in God either to be the one that defends us. How often does our fear, our paranoia, our need to compare ourselves to other people betray our pride? I fall into this all the time when I think that something's mine. I've got a title, I've got a little role, I've got to protect it, and I've got to guide it, and I've got to cultivate it. I find myself very quick to throw spheres. But in that, I lose myself, I lose my sonship, I lose the identity that God's given me, and I begin to take my eyes off of myself and put them on other people, and then feel the need to fight for my, what I deserve, to fight for my position, to fight to be here. But what I'm really saying in that is, I don't really trust God. I don't really trust him to define me. I don't really trust that maybe he's put me in this position in my life. I love the affirmation that I get from you guys. I love it, because in my healthiest days, it's the expression of God being used by you as a vehicle to reassure me that I'm in the right place and that I'm doing okay. But it's so easy for me to take it off you guys being the expression of God's love and affirmation for me and to put it on you that you're my source and that I crave the affirmation from the people that I serve and I pastor and I preach to. And I find myself in that place of pride because then I start fishing out to get something out of you to feed me and to build up my own little empire. But I can only find true confidence in God's call in my life, which means I have to be listening. I have to keep my ears open. I have to keep my eyes open and fix them on him. And then when he does speak through you to me to to affirm me in my position to what he's called me to, 
It's, it's in proper alignment, and I can receive it, and it builds me up, and it continues to, to help me move down the road. But prideful leadership leads to fear of man. Humble leadership has confidence in God's hand at work in and through us. So we're going to take another moment, another Selah, and I want to ask you this question. Again, in the place that, that you've been called to lead, in the place that you have some authority, you have some responsibility, do you lead from the love of God or do you lead from the fear of man? So let's just take a moment and just pray through that. Father, teach us how to be like David, how to suffer the slings and arrows of this world, but in humility to trust you to vindicate us, to trust you to defend us, to trust you to to affirm us in the positions that you've called us to, Lord, that we find ourselves steadily less putting up our fists in order to defend our little empires, Father, but we would joyfully see our place within your kingdom and accept that reality. Towards the end of the story of Saul and David, David has been running from, from cave to cave, from mountaintop to mountaintop, from valley to valley, always being pursued by Saul and his army because Saul has been so twisted by his jealousy and his anger that he needs to take it out on David. And there's this fantastic story in 1 Samuel 24. That's where we're going to go next. And so Saul is out pursuing David with his army, and he sees a cave, and he goes over to the cave to relieve himself. That means what you think it means. It's okay. It's in the Bible. But David sneaks up behind him. All, all, of, all of David's mighty men come up to him and they say, David, this is the moment you've been waiting for. This is it. Remember the Lord promised you that, you were, that Saul was going to be delivered into your hands. This is it. And so David sneaks up behind Saul, and just when he's ready to stab him in the back, He pauses, and he cuts off a little piece of Saul's cloak, and then he sneaks away again. And right after that, it says this in verse 5 in chapter 24. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of, of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. Think about that for a second, okay? This guy has been chasing him for like 20 years, Throwing spears at him, like just trashing his name, making him an absolute pariah in Israel and Judah. And he says, and his guys say to him, you know what? Like, you, you deserve this, David. You deserve this moment to kill the king. 
You deserve this moment to take him down and to step into your rightful place. And David is so conscious stricken. He's so filled with honor. He says, I can't do that to my master, the Lord's anointed, or to lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. Who in here has the right to determine who God has anointed and who he hasn't? Let's talk about humility. But David honors God so much that even when the very anointed is the source of all of the suffering in his life, he cannot lift a finger against him. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then, and this is the beautiful part of it, then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my lord the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day, You've seen with your own eyes how the Lord has delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Not only does David not take the opportunity to kill the king, but David comes before the king and bows down, recognizes the authority that he still has, and lays himself open and vulnerable before Saul. How many, how many of us would do that in that same situation? What tremendous humility David has that he's willing to lay himself completely bare before his oppressor. Against whom has the, kingdom of, the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. What a human moment. I hope that this even brings the Old Testament alive for you in some way, that you see these profoundly human moments. When we see that in, in those shoes, would we act like David? Would we have that level of humility of recognizing our reliance on God, entrusting God's plan, even above and beyond our own understanding, to come bare before Saul and to say, may the Lord judge between you and I, because I'm sure as hell not going to be the one that does it. That is humility. That's power. And that's the moment, I believe, that God probably said he's ready. Now he's ready to ascend to the throne. The humble leader lays himself bare before others, trusting the Lord to guide and to protect. And we see this in the ultimate king, King Jesus, that the first shall be last, and the greatest shall be least. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When they struck him, he did not strike back, but he trusted the one who judges justly. You know, I look around at this current political climate that we're in, and I see that so many of us have been disappointed by the leaders in our past. 
Maybe it's in the church. Maybe it's in government. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's in your workplace. But so many of us carry this disappointment from bad leadership. And sometimes it makes us rally to the person who is all full of brash confidence, the person that has all the answers and they seem to be the one, the source, the linchpin that's going to hold it all together. And that's the person we rally around. We say, finally, we've got a strong leader. Finally, we've got someone who's got all the answers. Maybe this time it's going to work. Ha, 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 ha. If you know anything about history, you know empires come and go, but the kingdom of heaven is forever. The humble leader is called to be a faithful presence in the midst of the chaos of humanity. The humble leader does not feel the need to prove himself or herself. The humble leader does not feel the need to defend what they're building. The humble leader is always before God, seeking him, finding him, listening to him, allowing him to guide. And it's the consistency of the humble leader over time that speaks to the wounds and the disappointment that each of us carry because of the leaders that have come before us. I am legally not allowed to tell you who you should vote for this year. But let's go ahead and vote for Jesus. Let's write him in. Happens every year, I'm sure. And then Cole Neesmith 2020. But sometimes we find ourselves in a place just like Israel before Samuel, saying, you're old, you're done, give us a king like everybody else. We do the same thing in the church. But what would it look like for each of us to come back to King Jesus, to recognize him as the one true authority that has stood up the test of time, that his kingdom has no end. It does not crumble like Babylon or Persia or Rome. It does not crumble like the ones that we live in today, but the kingdom of God is forever. And it started with a king who is humble, a leader who is humble, who made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, so that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he's Lord. So what does humility look like? Revelation of God's character and will aligns our call to leadership according to the kingdom. That when God reveals what is his character, when we say what is God like, and God's will, what is God's desire, what is God's plan, when we begin to ask those questions in the places that we are each leading, it aligns that call to leadership according to the king, according to his kingdom. And the beauty is that all of our gifts and our passions all of the places that God has put us in and the positions of influence, all of those things become aligned into his kingdom. I I heard an interview recently with the author Elizabeth Gilbert, and she said, you know what, I love that I'm ambitious, but ambition can take a front seat, but it's not allowed to drive. And for each of you, I love that you have gifts. I love that you have passions. I love that you have desires and vocations. But all those things get to sit in the front seat. They don't get to drive. And that's what it looks like for us to be humble leaders. And I believe in that, friends, there is a tremendous freedom within the kingdom of God for us to creatively lead out of our kingdom character. And it also gives us freedom to trust in other people's leadership in the places that they've been called to. And not only that, but we begin to celebrate other leaders in the gifts that they bring and the passions that they bring. 
One of my favorite stories of David when he finally ascends to the throne is that when the Ark of the Covenant is being brought into Jerusalem at last, he strips down to his skivvies and he dances in front of the Ark because he's so excited. And his wife is just so embarrassed. I don't blame her. But that's the kind of king he was. He's the kind of king that strips down to his underwear and dances before the Lord out of joy. He puts aside even the kingly title for a moment and becomes a priest and becomes a joyful fool before the Lord. But you know, David was just a shadow of the king that was to come. King Jesus, Jesus is the full revelation of God's character. Jesus is the full revelation of God's will. God looks like Jesus. God has always looked like Jesus. And that's who we follow tonight. And that's who we put our trust in tonight. As we say yes to the places of leadership that God's calling us to within his kingdom and within his church. So if you'd stand with me, please, we're going to worship this king, this humble king who makes himself nothing to bring us back into relationship with God. And we're going to celebrate him for that constant invitation he gives us to step in and to say yes and to be open-handed before him and allow him to shape us and to sculpt us and to draw us deeper into being part of his kingdom, but also using us as the vessels of mercy through which he saves this world and he brings healing to it. So let's pray and then we'll worship. Heavenly Father, I, just, I, I pray for a new anointing in this room of your leaders that look ever more like your kingdom, Father. That we would so easily lay down the patterns that we've absorbed from the empires of the world that have told us what it looks like to be leaders. That we let go of what the lies that we've heard of what we think authority is supposed to be or of what we think that we deserve or what we think success looks like. Father, that we would lay down all of those things at your feet awaiting redemption that we would come before you like David came before Saul, completely open and saying, Lord, judge me. Lord, do your will. Do your will with my life and everything that I am because I want nothing more than to be the kind of leader that you're calling me to be and to find joy in that, to find a strength in that open-handed weakness before you. Father, I just, I just pray that continual thing that's come up in our church, Lord, that this would be an incubator for leaders in your kingdom. That people in this church would encounter you in such a dramatic way that they would align themselves under King Jesus in such a powerful way that you send us out from this place to lead in every aspect of culture that we see the kingdom advance and we're, we're surprised by it and delighted. So, Father, as we step into worship, would you continue to speak over each one of us who you've created us to be, that we might celebrate you, we might celebrate one another, and we might celebrate who you've created us as. We pray all these things in that one name that is raised above all other names, Jesus Christ, our Lord and King. Amen.